Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Bob Larson, Dr. Philip Lancaster, Dr. Brian Lubers, and Dr. Dustin Pendle. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning, Brad. Good morning. Good morning. Happy to have you guys with us and happy to have you listening as well. We've got several good topics we want to talk about today, including we've got a great listener question as follow-up. If you, if you didn't listen to some of the, we had the parasitologists on and they were talking about internal parasites in cattle, really a big deal. They had some interesting thoughts. We got a follow-up question that we're going to address today, as well as talk a little bit more about diagnostic labs and a report that came out talking about the efficiency of cattle marketing and how that goes through the system. And we'll talk to Dr. Brian Coffey from the Ag Econ Department. As, as, you, as always, if you have questions or thoughts you'd like us to talk about, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu. And don't forget, we've got a weekly email newsletter that comes out. That e-newsletter has a lot of our stories, but also has some additional information, including some of the graphs and focus from our research team. So as new research comes out, we tend to put it there first. So if you want to get on that email list, you can give us a call and sign up. Before we get into our topics for the day, guys, it's almost time to get into Thanksgiving dinner. So as you think about Thanksgiving dinner, I want to know very specifically, favorite dessert? Only a dessert. Uh, yeah. What's your favorite I, dessert? And Bob, you cannot easy. say pumpkin pie because you and I I'm have I'm going to say discussion. pumpkin pie with no. cool whip on top. <laughs> real whip cream on top. There you no, go. I'm taking, taking pumpkin pie off the table. You can't pick it. It's too easy. I'll, I'll go first. This one's easy. So we have a family tradition at our house. Um, it's it's a pumpkin swirl cheesecake that my mom had made, and now my wife makes it, and it is fantastic. That sounds pretty good. My uh, favorite thing would be um, just pie in general. I mean, I like all kinds of pie. So and you stick any kind of pie on there, and and I'm good to go. I think I'd have to agree with Philip, but I'd say probably Cool Whip with a little sliver of pumpkin pie. <laughs> okay, so don't even. This is this is why you don't you don't listen to directions. Everybody said something with pumpkin in it. I said no pumpkin pie. Oh, okay, yeah, we're gonna go. Ahead I said go. Cool Whip. It's Cool and, Whip and Cool Whip with yeah. a little side, a little sliver of pumpkin pie. <laughs> exactly. So first first topic that we wanted to hit on today, and and um, we've talked a little bit about diagnostic labs in the past and sending off samples to the diagnostic lab and the importance from the, whether, whether you're a cow-calf operation or you're a stalker feeder, many times we want to have those diagnostic labs as part of our system. And, and Brian, you spent several years here and part of our diagnostic lab working on some of those samples. And, and there's been some articles come out and talk about how are those labs sustainable? How important are they? What's the economic impact? And I wanted to get your perspective. Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously veterinary diagnostic labs specifically have, have been a part of U.S. agriculture for a long time. I think, you know, having that support system recognized is, is really, really important. And, and most, most states um, have some sort of of veterinary support, they the state budget supports a, a veterinary diagnostic lab system, and um, I think you know what we've realized, you know, with COVID and laboratory testing capacity is um, you can't, you don't have enough when, or you you may not, you can't have enough when you need it, 
right? And so um, there have been a few articles that have come out that that talk about, you know, what's the sustainability and and maybe a little bit about what's the return on investment in those laboratories. But I think, you know, one of the big points, having worked in that system and kind of understanding the inside of it a little bit and, um, you know, people are used to when they get sick and their, their physician um, wants to do some sort of diagnostic testing, you know, that, that gets billed through an insurance and maybe you see a bill or maybe you don't. And that's, that's a huge difference in veterinary laboratories is it is a primary payer system, right? And so um, it's, uh, it's the client who is paying for those services. And so I think um, that it becomes a, a different kind of line of discussion between the, the healthcare provider, the veterinarian um, and the client is, you know, what's the value in having this test and that result? Absolutely. And that changes the dynamic a little bit as far as who's paying for it. But, but just what you said, you've got to have those systems in place for some of the bigger events as well. And to do that, we have to maintain the different specialties because it's not just a person in a lab, right? You have bacteriology, you have virology, you have the pathologist, you have a lot of different people doing pretty specific jobs that are pretty important to more than just the people sending in samples, right? There's actually some monitoring that's done on kind of a broader basis. Yeah. And so, you know, often veterinary laboratories will serve as a, as a surveillance system where we don't, we, in the U S we've got a few surveillance programs for very specific diseases, but anything outside of that, you know, if you want to, if you want to know about disease prevalence, oftentimes your source of information are the, the summaries from diagnostic laboratories. So yeah, they, they serve that purpose as well, Brad. Question for you, uh, Brian, how does human health factor into the, the human health side of it? I mean, I'm thinking COVID, right? We've had, you know, last year and a half. So how has K-State's D-Lab or has it, you know, been impacted with uh, the human health side? Yeah. So yes, the answer is yes. Um, you know, specifically with COVID, um, our molecular lab was was actually performing some testing as a as an overflow capacity. So yes, there's that. Um, but even before COVID, there were there are lots of diseases that are zoonotic diseases. So those that affect both animals and humans um, that diagnostic laboratories are testing for. Um, so you think, and we talk about the surveillance. So you know, brucellosis is a good example, right? We've had control programs for brucellosis for a long time, right, Bob? So um, you know, diagnostic labs are the ones that are performing brucellosis tests. So uh, the beyond just the 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 example we're living in today, you know, we have a long history of, of testing for zoonotic diseases. So there's regu- regulatory work in addition to diagnostic work or trying to figure out what's wrong with this, with this set or group of animals. And, and I think one of the things as you, as you think about what D-Labs do, it's behind the scenes. So if you're a veterinarian, you work directly with the D-Lab. If you're a producer, you may work with your veterinarian who sends things off. But building that relationship with the people at the D-Lab is what's really important as well, because then you understand what kind of samples you need, how you need to get those to them. Because I know you went through some of that, Brian, as, as you worked through that process. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the behind the scenes, too. You know, the other thing that, that I think is really hard to capture from an economic perspective is, 
you know, now that now that we talk about COVID kind of as an everyday term, you know, diagnostic laboratories are are prepared to assist with if we have if we were to ever have foreign animal disease outbreaks, and we have in the past. So, you know, part of part of what their function is 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 to be ready for those situations where, um, you know, if we have a an avian influenza or an African swine fever that would ever show up, an avian influenza has, but if those were ever to show up in the United States, we would have capacity to do large scale testing to try to, to minimize that the effects of those outbreaks as well. In addition to that surge capacity that you're talking about, maybe you already mentioned this, but obviously you, you conduct research, teaching, uh, a lot of other things at the D labs. And there was actually a study done at the, at the Iowa State University looking at uh, kind of the economic impact contributions of D labs. Well, specifically Iowa State University's D lab. We can put a, a link to that paper, that report in our show notes. Excellent. Thanks, guys. And, and I think it's really important. And, and like we said, kind of behind the scenes, but something to think about and maybe understand that a lot of times, as Brian mentioned, it's that primary payer system. So we're paying for a lot of those samples as they go in. And we want those labs to, to be in place and be able to service people throughout the industry. I want to shift gears. And we had a great question as follow up to our conversation with Dr. Heron and Dr. Chella Durai relative to internal parasites. And I'm just going to read part of this question to you guys. And I've got a response from Dr. Heron, but I want to get your take as well. And the question is, this listener has been learning a lot about regenerative, sustainable agriculture. Deworming is something that is discouraged because of the potential environmental impact. So what what are some of your thoughts on deworming and the potential environmental impact? I'll start, Brad, with this one. Um, you know, I think I think it's a great question, and I um, obviously this person's thought about this a little bit, um, and I I know you're going to talk about Dr. Heron's response as well. But I think you know we talk about sustainability, and maybe Philip can comment a little bit more. But I think think about a holistic approach to to this. So, is it possible that dewormers would impact um, beetle and uh, beneficial beetle and nematode populations in the environment. Um, Yes, I think that is possible. And there is some research that um, shows the effect specifically on beetles. Um, But I, but also I have the question, you know, as far as a, a holistic approach and sustainability is if we have animals that are heavily parasitized, then how does that impact their utilization of the resources? So um, obviously a a cow that is heavily parasitized isn't going to convert grass to um, body mass or reproduction as efficiently. And so we lose some sustainability there. And obviously we're, we're trying to balance those two things, but that's kind of my thought. Yeah, I would agree, Brian. Um, I think, we we think about carbon emission intensity, which is the amount of greenhouse gases that are emitted per unit of beef produced. And you know, if we are decreasing the digestion and efficiency of that forage or whatever feed it is, then we're decreasing the conversion of that feed to the uh, beef product and and really probably the biggest thing we're having in that relationship is 
we're we're still or that animal is still emitting the same amount of methane because those those nematodes and whatever are not really affecting things in the rumen they're affecting things downstream in the digestive tract and so that animal is still emitting the same amount of methane but then they're not absorbing the same amount of nutrients probably most likely protein um, to begin with and so we're really decreasing the efficiency of the conversion of that feed to beef product, but still producing the same amount of, of methane out of that, that fermentation process. So lifetime, potentially even more methane, because if it takes longer time period for that animal to finish or get to the weight that we want them to get to in the case of a growing animal, if the more days, the more that they're going to produce and the more resources they're going to use to get to that same pounds of beef. So you're, you're not, I mean, you're talking about feed conversion on a daily basis, but that adds up over a lifetime. Bob, what are your thoughts? Yeah. And I think it's also important to think about the animal in that, again, I'm kind of the older one in the group and I can remember before we had some of the really good anti-parasite drugs that we have today. And, And parasites are one of the things that can really make cattle uh, I'm going to say sick. I mean, it can really drag them down. But I think this listener brings up a good question is, is uh, let's, let's keep things in balance in that I don't want to overuse these dewormers, uh, you know, from a cost standpoint, but also because of uh, they do have an effect on other types of worms that are healthy, good worms in the soil and things like that. But I think my idea is balance, you know, so use these dewormers to protect the cattle, keep them efficient, but don't overuse them. I mean, certainly we got to think about kind of unintended consequences as well. Um, and so sustainability is, is really about balancing. And, and there's not very many times you get an, a 100% win on any decision we make. And so it's all about balancing those decisions to really uh, be sustainable in the long run. I think that's a great way to put it, Bob. And, and there, it's not about we should never use them or we should use them all the time on every animal everywhere and and that sort of echoes what dr heron said and he cited that there are some differences among products and and you probably want to work with your veterinarian to figure out which one makes sense for you but there are some differences among products and he kind of said the same thing as you did bob in that we have to think about what are some of those cost benefits and cost here. I'm going to use not just economic cost, right? But what are some of the cost benefits to the environment and anything that we use has an impact on the animal, the people and the environment. So we should use them in the appropriate ways at the appropriate times. So great question. And we always enjoy getting those and, that helps us form some good discussion. We appreciate the follow-up there. We appreciate Dr. Heron jumping in and, and giving us some feedback. I want to shift gears now, and, and we're happy to have Dr. Brian Coffey from the Agricultural Economics Department here. He's an associate professor, does a lot of work with undergraduate students, but also has done some really cool research with some of his colleagues there, and they looked at some things relative to price discovery, cattle marketing methods, and, and looked a little on the fed cattle side. And One of the things that they really looked into are what are the pros and cons of some of the different marketing methods, including uh, how we market those fed cattle relative to risk management and the ability to accurately transfer the value of those calves. So tell us a little bit, Brian, what what did you learn from that research? Yeah, thanks, Brad. 
So the research we just mentioned was uh, uh, partially funded by USDA Office of the Chief Economist, so we appreciate their support there. And uh, used a lot of the USDA Ag Marketing Service prices, so certainly appreciate all the work there that, that the AMS people put in. Uh, Ted Schroeder and Glenn Tonzer were on the project, so I contributed, but certainly a, a team effort there. And uh, what we were trying to do is come in and give sort of a one-stop shop for how we arrived at the current situation in live cattle marketing. Uh, we, we came into 2019, we had a plant fire there in Holcomb, Kansas. Then we came into 2020 and we had COVID-19 disruptions too numerous to mention. And these things really exacerbated and, and pointed out some of the the bottlenecks and, and the, the, the realities of our, our beef and cattle supply chain. And these were, ex these were extreme events, you know, we'd probably even say, you know, lifetime events. They're not something that happened all the time, but they certainly brought, you know, caused a lot of concern and caused a lot of stress in the industry. And at the same time, we've had 40 years worth of, of industry trends that have brought us to where we are in terms of the way we determine price and value of cattle and beef and the way that we market cattle and beef. And so one thing we wanted to do was be sure we keep those things separate, look at the longer term trends, why we're here, how we got here, and then also acknowledge, you know, that these sort of um, very rare, very severe events um, have consequences but not let that get in the way of the longer run economic incentives for why we do things the way we do. So that was kind of our goal there to kind of, to give a picture of where we are, look at going forward, thinking about how we see the industry evolving from here. And then also I mentioned the AMS price reporting, thinking about the way that that market information is out there and available, how that might be tweaked, and adjusted to be more useful for industry participants. Well, I've got a question for you, Brian. So when I think of, uh, I'm kind of the old man on the podcast here. So I, I remember when most of the cattle were priced on a live basis or maybe on a, on a carcass basis. And during my career, we've certainly seen a move towards a lot more uh, grid-based marketing for fed cattle. Um, to, to me, just in my mind uh, as a veterinarian, not an ag economist, that probably means that We've got more diversity in the final value price paid for carcasses. We went from where basically every calf received the same price per pound of either live weight or carcass weight to a pretty big diversity, which then that raises my mind is, well, then you're going to have winners and losers. Is that, is that accurate? First of all, is that, is that one of the changes we've seen in the last 40 years? And how does that pertain to both the fed cattle and then for cow-calf producers or feeder-calf prices, has it, I mean, what's the linkage between there? Or am I making things up? No, Bob, I think that's a great observation. Certainly, we've seen in the last 20 years, um, AMS categories include live negotiated, negotiated grid, forward contract, and then sort of a... a catch-all that's called formula pricing. And generally, that formula pricing category will be uh, grid-based marketing. Not all of it, but a lot of it is. And over the past 20 years, we've seen basically 
the, the number of cattle in that formula base go from 30% up to about 70%. So you're exactly right, that's the trend. Uh, there is diversity in prices, and uh, that was kind of the goal, is that if uh, we can know, if, if we can know what the customers and consumers want, then we can go back and we can give price signals to people producing beef to reward them for that. And so the people who can match those uh, sort of standards get rewarded for it. The ones who don't, don't, right? And so you're exactly right. That's a different approach than an average pricing where basically everybody's selling weight. But well, that's, that's, that's what you want, though, right? I mean, because there's huge diversity in the cattle population. And this is when you mention the word efficient pricing. In this scenario, that means the pricing matches the value of the product that's coming through, right? The more efficient the market is, the more closely the actual price matches. When we sell for an average price, we're overpaying for some animals and underpaying for others, and but if you can't get away from that average pricing system, it's hard to send those price incentives back. Yeah, it's it's basically impossible. I would say not just hard; it's impossible. And, and you're exactly right. Um, if if I'm a cattle feeder and I would like to do things so that my downstream eventual end consumers get the kind of product that they want, well, how can I be assured that my investments will will be rewarded? Right. And if I'm selling on an average basis, I, I have no way to know that if I know some targets, some kinds of things that that the car, some sort of carcass performance levels that I think are under my control and I know I can be rewarded for that, then I'm willing to maybe change my sourcing of feeder cattle. I'm willing to invest in different feeding regimes. I'm willing to do things differently, maybe uh, you know, yard practices, whatever, because I know I can get rewarded for it. So you're right. The diversity in prices um, in, in, in a lot of ways is a good thing. It means that um, we're sending the right signal back to uh, producers as to what the end users actually want. Especially, and Bob has told me many times, not everybody's above average, and the same is true with, with cattle. So finding those above average cattle and putting them in the right marketing structure can make sense. And even if they're not above average, getting that information lets you know how to better plan in advance. So we, we appreciate you joining us, Dr. Coffee, and we want to catch up with you more. This report is a good one. We're going to put a link in the show notes that has a, a really nice table that summarizes a lot of this information. So you can find that information in our show notes. Well, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate you listening and spending some time with us. And as always, if you have questions, comments, or you'd like to sign up for that BCI newsletter, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.